0: Welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. golf's most prestigious event the Masters was played just a few months ago in March and the winner was Scotty Scheffler which wasn't a surprise because he's the number one golfer in the world but there was extra buzz around the Masters this year because it was the first tournament that Tiger Woods played after the accident that he had that might have ended his career and when we think of the Masters, we think of legendary names in golf, like Tiger Woods, like Arnold Palmer, like Jack Nicholas. but a name that wouldn't be a part of that conversation of golfing legends is a guy named Doug Ford. Now, most people don't remember that Doug Ford actually won the Masters in 1957. However, he never won it again, and Even though his play steadily declined, actually got really poor over the next 50 years, he was still allowed to play in the Masters every single year. Why? because every Masters champion receives a lifetime invitation. You always get to play the Masters if you've won it. So Ford didn't come even close to qualifying with his golf skills for decades after he won, but he was still allowed to play the tournament every year because on that one single occasion, He had won it, and so once and for all time, he was invited. Now, most Masters champions, once they get to a certain age where their skills begin to deteriorate, they usually don't play the Masters anymore, but not Doug Ford, he kept playing every single year, and he only stopped when he finally couldn't walk the course, because you have to walk the course. He played 49 Masters tournaments in all, yeah, which is a pretty good number, You know, and I was thinking about the fact that there aren't many things in this world that are once and for all like that. Most things can be undone or redone. But our passage for today, in it the author of Hebrews examines a job that Jesus accomplished once and for all. And it was, in fact, the most important job ever completed, and we'll come back to that. Well, this morning we are continuing on in our series of messages called He is Greater Than All from the book of Hebrews. If you ask someone what the greatest thing in this life was, if you ask people you'd get tons of different answers, but the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about again and again has just one, that Jesus is greater than all. And we've seen from the author of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than Moses, Jesus is greater than the prophets, than people like Abraham and Jacob, and we've seen also that Jesus is a greater high priest who serves in a greater heavenly temple under a greater covenant. And last week we saw that this greater covenant only came about by a greater sacrifice that Jesus offered. Well, today we're gonna stay with that theme of sacrifice and we're gonna see that that greater sacrifice that Jesus offered was a once and for all sacrifice. It was a perfect sacrifice because it took away our sins for ever. And that, my friends, is good news. Pray with me and we'll get started. Let's pray. Loving God, we're so grateful for the grace that we have in Jesus, the amazing grace, the unimaginable grace. And we pray that you would speak with power to us today about the foundations that were laid in the old covenant that bring us this new covenant of grace and that you would speak to us most profoundly about the sufficiency and the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews today, and I want to begin by just reading the first four verses together, and then we'll look at the rest of the passages as we go by. But let's do that right now. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. So the author writes this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So that's the opening of our passage in chapter 10. So in the last few chapters what we've seen is that the author has been focusing on the Jewish high priest, on the temple, on the sacrifices that were made there, and on the old covenant itself. And what the author has said is that these things were only shadows, foreshadows if you will. Shadows and foreshadows of greater realities to come. And so here in verse 1, the author says the very same thing about the law. It says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Now, these shadows, it's not that they were unimportant, They served a purpose in their time, but they really could not compare to the greater realities that they pointed forward to. And once those realities had come, the question is, why would anybody think about going back to the old shadows? And yet, we're gonna see that's the temptation today. Why would anyone wanna go to cling to those shadows? So all those things in the Old Testament, they are the shadows, and the reality, well, that's Jesus, and the works that Jesus comes and accomplishes in this world. So there's these early shadows that are precursors of that. Now we also need to remember as we've talked about that Hebrews was first written to early Jewish Christians and these were people who faced a lot of challenges as we've talked about in becoming Christians. They would have been ostracized from their Jewish communities, likely rejected from their families and they would have faced persecution because Christianity was still an illegal religion under the Roman Empire at that time. And life and faith are hard and in time, these people grew weary, and some of them had begun to drift in their faith, and some had begun to consider going back to Judaism, going back to what was comfortable, what they knew, what was safe. And of course, a big part of Judaism was the law. The Jews loved the law, and that was a good thing, because it was God's word. So the author realizing that there's these early Jewish Christians who are considering going back to Judaism, going back to the law, is pushing these Jewish Christians to see that the ceremonial law, and we'll define this a little bit more, and the system of sacrifices that it had, well, they were only a shadow. And they pointed some, forward to something greater, Jesus, and that reality. And you don't want to go back to the shadow. You want to stay with the reality because that's what these Jewish Christians were tempted to do, to go back to the shadows, back to the law, back to the external faith of the old covenant. And you'll remember the last couple of chapters, that's how the author has described the old covenant and the law, as external that it was a set of rules and principles about what you should do and it only tended to affect people's behavior, not their inner person. And there's a way in which this is sometimes described when people have that kind of faith and it's called check the box faith. It's about what you do, not about who you're becoming. And check the box faith is tempting. It was tempting for those early Jewish Christians and it's tempting for us because check the box faith is easier It's not about transforming my heart. It's just about me doing some right things. So check the box, faith. It looks at the commandment that says, You shall not murder, and it says, Hey, great. I didn't murder anybody today. Check. I'm good. And it ignores the deeper application of the law, what Jesus pointed to, which is that we need to rid our hearts of anger and malice and those things that put us on the road to violence and things like murder. It's about internal change, and we miss that when we have checks-the-box faith. The same thing is that check-the-box faith looks at the commandment not to commit adultery, and it says, hey, great, I didn't commit adultery today. Check, I'm good and it misses Jesus' call to apply that law deeper to our internal person, and it's, Jesus says, no, you need to get rid of those those lustful thoughts that you have, those things that disrespect people and objectify them. It's about that internal change, and checks the box faith really doesn't deal with that. It doesn't bring internal change. It doesn't transform lives, because only Jesus, the reality, not the shadow, only he can do that. So this was their temptation, and frankly, that could be a temptation for us as well. Now, the author d- drives this point home by, by saying, look, these sacrifices required by the law, they had to be offered again and again and again because they weren't sufficient. In fact, he says they weren't sufficient to make a person perfect enough to draw near to God. They just weren't enough. And there's a couple of things to notice here. And one is the futility of this again and again. And we'll see that throughout the passage, day after day, year after year. There's a futility to continuing to offer sacrifices that are never going to be enough. It made me think of that Greek mythological character, Sisyphus. Sisyphus uh, cheated death twice, and so Zeus doomed him to spend eternity pushing a large stone up a steep hill, and every time he was just about to get it on top, it would roll back down. And that's how he would spend eternity. And it was a picture of total and utter futility, and reminded me a little bit of offering these sacrifices again, and again, and again, and they're never enough. Now, the other thing here is that word perfect. And we've talked about this before. In Greek, that word is teleos, and although it can mean perfect, it really has a greater sense of something that is being completed or something that is fulfilled. It can also mean maturity, but I think here it's completed or fulfilled. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they weren't able to do what they needed to do. They couldn't complete the work in us. They couldn't fulfill the work in us that needed to be done, and that work was the forgiveness of our sins and making us holy holy in God's sight, they really couldn't do that. Now, they weren't as totally futile as Sisyphus and his rock, okay? They did serve a purpose, they just weren't enough. They were shadows that pointed to a greater reality that would be sufficient, Jesus that's coming. So verse two, the author makes the argument that if those sacrifices had been enough, if they had really been able to solve the problem of sin, than they would have. And if they had solved that problem, they would no longer have needed to have been offered. It would have been finished. But because we need to keep offering them, we understand that they are not enough. And so the author says, look, if they had done that, if they had uh, solved the problem, it says that the people would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But everybody knew that that, wasn't the case, that was not how it was. So with verse 13, the author points to the sacrifices made every year on the Day of Atonement. He says, look, you know, they offer those sacrifices again and again because they're not enough, and really what he says is those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. That's what they become. They're supposed to be an atonement, but they aren't an atonement. So what they really do is they just remind us, oh, oh, I'm okay for another year, but my sin is still there. It still hangs over me, and it's never going away. So they were a reminder of that. In verse four, the the author just tells us why. The author has alluded to this theological point, but hasn't made it really straight up like he does here. He says this, verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Point blank, it's just not possible. We'll get to why. But those sacrifices just weren't enough. All that they could do was set sin aside for time, they couldn't forgive it. They couldn't remove it. The shadow could set it aside for a time until the reality came, until God's ultimate plan for that sin had unfolded. Well, now let's take a look at verses five through 10, all right, as the passage continues. The author writes this. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second, And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So with verse five, the author says, hey, let's be thankful because the greater reality has come into the world, and it's Jesus. And the author says that when Jesus came into the world, he had some things to say. Now we don't know exactly where Jesus said these things. The the idea is that maybe when Jesus was incarnated he said them to God or he said them to the heavenly realms before coming to this world but Jesus had something to say. But I want you to notice that what Jesus says here. What he doesn't say is here is what I plan to do. That's not what Jesus says. What he does do is quote some prophecy about himself. And in this way, he is basically saying, I am coming to do what God had planned for me to do all along. This is the plan. Jesus is the reality that the shadows pointed to. And so what Jesus does is he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And he basically says, I am coming to do what God has planned for me to do. And in this quote also, here are the greater things that the law points forward to. So with the quote, Jesus says that the sacrifices of the Old Testament weren't really what God wanted. He just straight up says that. They really were just shadows, they weren't ultimately what God really wanted because there was always a greater plan. And that plan was for Jesus to come, you'll notice it says, in a body, in a person. Verse six, Jesus reiterates again, Those offerings were not ultimately what pleased God, and then in verse 7 he declares that what was written in the scroll, meaning the scripture, is that he has come to do God's will. And that's so important for us to understand, because that means that not only has Jesus come to do God's will by his work on the cross and salvation, but it also means that Jesus is going to live this life obedient to God's will. And that's really important too. So, He's gonna come in a person and be obedient to God's will. So he quotes this, and then the author is so concerned that we are not gonna fully take those points in that the author then reiterates both of them and offers a little bit of a clarification. In verse eight, the author repeats Jesus' words from verse five that sacrifices weren't ultimately pleasing to God and then offers this clarification, saying, but they were required by the law. We did them, Because they served a purpose for a time, but there was always something better to come. Verse 9, the author repeats Jesus' words about his willingness to do God's will. That emphasis is put there. But there's another clarification that he adds. He says that when Jesus came to do God's will, God set aside that first covenant. And Jesus established a new one. Because of him doing his will. Another shadow is giving way to a reality and the plan is unfolding here. And it was because of Jesus' obedience to God's will that it says in verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Notice again the emphasis on the body here and in verse 5. And the point is that Jesus was a real human being. He lived a real human life. He suffered real human pain. He died a real human death for our sins. So, why was the blood of goats and of bulls not enough? Why were their bodies not enough? Because they were not human. It wasn't human blood being shed, it wasn't human life or a human being. It was humans who had sinned. So it was a human life that needed to pay the price. But here's the thing, it couldn't be just any life. It needed to be a righteous life. And there is only one person ever in all of history who had a righteous life that they could offer, and that was Jesus. And that is what made his sacrifice for sin perfect It's what made it powerful, sufficient, and able to make us holy, it says here. Jesus lived the right life that you and I are supposed to live, and we just don't do it. And then Jesus took that righteous life and he offered it to God on the cross in place of your life, in place of my life. That kind of substitution is not gonna work with an animal. It's not the same thing, but Jesus offered the same thing, the righteous human life, and when he did that, once and for all, he saved us. And it was once and for all because there was nothing more needed. The reality had come, and it was and still remains sufficient. Let's look at the last part of this chapter, verses 11 through 18. The author continues and says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, that's Jesus, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstools, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy." The Holy Spirit also testifies for us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts, I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So with verse 11, the author again reminds us of the futility of the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices. And he gives us this picture. Day after day, every priest stands performing his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. That's the situation. Those sacrifices were only a way for us to tread water until we could truly be saved. And then in contrast to that, in verse 12, the author says, but when this priest, when Jesus came, he offered once for all time the sacrifice for sin, and he sat down at the right hand of God. We've heard that phrase before, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God back in chapter 8. We touched on its meaning there, we'll go over it again. It's very significant to say that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God signifies a couple of things. The first is, throughout the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about, the author has been proclaiming that Jesus is greater than all. And here we see Jesus enthroned in majesty alongside the Lord God Almighty above all. It just makes that case. But there's a second piece here, and it's this, that when you sit down, that action in the Bible is a sign that you have finished your work. You are done. And we talked about before, really curious thing, that in the Jewish temple, the ancient temple, there were no chairs, And there was a reason for that because the priests were never supposed to sit down because their work was never done. They had to continually offer more and more sacrifices because no sacrifice that they ever offered was ever going to be enough. It was only finished when Jesus said, It is finished on the cross. And he made the perfect once for all sacrifice for our sins and ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, verse 13 points out that although Jesus' work is done, the full plan of God is not yet finished. The author speaks here of a day in verse 13 when Jesus will return and God will finally take full control of this world. He clearly hasn't yet. Evil is running amok in many ways in this world. But one day Jesus will return and God will take full control of this world and it says that Jesus' enemies will become his footstool. You know what someone does when they're your footstool? They get down on the ground. it's, It's like getting on all fours. That's the image. And it echoes another really important image of that very same day we see elsewhere in scriptures. In Philippians, it talks about that same day, and it says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's looking forward to that day, to Jesus' ultimate triumph. That is a reality that we still are looking forward to, and the author wants us to know that. But Although there is still more to come with God's plan, the author wants us to be sure to know in verse 14 that God's redemptive work has already been completed. Jesus has already died. He has already made atonement once for all to make us perfect. And by perfect, it means forgiven and saved, able to draw near to God All those things are already done for us if we, by faith, accept them. And if we do, it is our call to seek to live more deeply into them. Notice it says here, those who are daily being made holy. There's a continuous action there. Our call is is to live more deeply into the grace of God every day. And that means that we should be growing and changing and becoming more like him. And if we're not, if our faith is not causing us to grow and change, something is wrong. If your faith is not causing you to grow and change, something is wrong. That's not the way it should be. Something needs to change. And sadly, so many Christians live that way. They believe, but they're not on the path to anywhere with God. They're They're stagnant. So, verses 15 and 6, the author offers two quotes from Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. And the author has actually offered these same quotes before, back in chapter 8. Only here, the author says something really interesting. Before it was like, hey, Jeremiah said these things, but here the author says the Holy Spirit said these things. And we might be thinking, well, how's that? You know, I mean, didn't Jeremiah write these words? And what the author really is alluding to is the fact that all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a very real sense in which these words are Jeremiah's words, but they're God's words. They're the Spirit's words. The Spirit testifies to them. And I think the author wants us to really hear them as God's word here and not just the prophecy of a man who died a long time ago and so he phrases it in that way so with the verse quote in verse 16 the author lifts up the fact that God's plan had always been for there to be a new covenant with his people this is Jeremiah writing hundreds and hundreds of years before this saying one day there will be a new covenant and the author wants us to know that that has always been God's plan. And the author explains that this new covenant, it wouldn't be an external covenant. It says right here, it'll be an internal covenant. My law will be written on their, their hearts and their minds. The reality is being spoken to here hundreds of years before. It would be a covenant that would transform people inside and out. The quote in verse 17, the author illustrates that God's plan has always been for that covenant to be a covenant covenant. Of grace. God says here, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. God, under the new covenant, will forgive and forget and wipe the slate clean. There was an old covenant, but the people didn't keep it, so it it remained unfulfilled. But with Jesus, God established a new covenant, and this new covenant wasn't based on the people and what they did. It was based on Jesus and what Jesus has already done. It was based on the promise of Jesus. It was based on the promise that God would forgive our sins in Jesus and be our God. That is the covenant of grace, And so to close the chapter in verse 18, the author makes a really important point. He says, where there has been forgiveness, where there has been sufficient forgiveness, no more sacrifices are needed. So you early Jewish Christians, don't you worry. You don't need to go back to that. What you have is better, and we know that too. So there we have it. The shadow of the law It sacrifices, and the old covenant are gone, replaced by the greater sacrifice of Jesus, his once and for all sacrifice, and the new covenant of grace. And this has important implications for us. And the first is something I touched on last week. Last week I touched on the fact that there is no sin that we could ever commit that would be so bad that God's grace wouldn't be sufficient to cover it. But I want to add to that this week that what is also true is that there is no amount of sin that we can ever commit that will become so great that God's grace is insufficient to cover it. There's no line that we might cross someday where we've gone too far and God's grace runs out. That will never happen. In fact, God's grace is is sufficient and he says so. uses that exact word in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. What it says, God's grace is sufficient. The shadows were insufficient, but the perfect once for all sacrifice is sufficient. In Romans 5.20, it says this, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. There will always be enough of God's grace. And if you were sitting there and you were thinking, I just don't think that I believe that, hang on. I got an answer for you. Second thing, because I want to wrap them all up in one here. The second thing is this. If you have believed, if you are sitting here today and you have believed that you already crossed that line, if you have been thinking of yourself as someone that God cannot forgive and accept because of that, I want you to know that that is incorrect, Or maybe you've been living your life with the fear that one day you may do one too many sins and you may step over that line. I want you to know that that kind of thinking is incorrect. It's simply not what scripture says. And and so now here it is. If you don't believe that, if you're pushing back on me and you're thinking, no, pastor, I don't think you understand the mountain of my sin, I want you to understand that there is no sin too bad and there is no amount of sin too great for God's grace to cover. And if you don't believe that, just like I said last week, you are believing in a very tiny and puny and wimpy God. Your God is way too small because the God of the New Testament, the God that we believe in here at Orchard is huge. And there is no sin too big and there is no amount of sin too great for him to easily forgive His grace is utterly sufficient. And I want us to be clear about that. And I also want us to be clear about this. There is nothing, nothing that you could do to earn that grace or merit that grace. Nothing. All that you can do is accept it as a free gift. Accept that and the fact that God loves you enough To have done that and to do that for you. Because that's the God we believe in too. So third, because God's grace is sufficient, because he forgives and forgets and wipes the slate clean, we need to trust and we need to live into that. And one of the ways that we don't do that is that we keep bringing back to God for forgiveness sins that we have already been forgiven for. We bring it to God, God forgives it, and we won't let go of it. So we keep bringing it back to God, saying, forgive me for the same sins over and over again, and we don't need to do that. Once we ask God for forgiveness, that sin is gone, and it says God remembers it no more. There was a man who was just consumed by the perceived mountain of his sin. And so he would pray again and again, bringing the same things to God again and again and again, even though they'd been forgiven, to wanting God's forgiveness. And one day the Lord, I think maybe frustrated with him, just spoke to him and said, look, I don't remember all of this stuff that you keep bringing to me. And the guy was shocked and he started explaining all these things. Well, what about this and what about that and what about that? And God said, you know, it just doesn't ring a bell. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And he, and he kept trying to convince God going back and forth. But what about this and what about that? And each time God was like, I don't know. I just, I, it doesn't register at all. And then finally, there was this moment where it dawned on the man that God really didn't remember because the promise of scripture is that God will not remember, that God will forget, that God will wipe the slate clean, that that's what his grace means. And we need to accept that and live in the freedom that God's grace offers us. It is sufficient. The fourth thing is this, again because God forgives and forgets, there are some of us here who need to stop living life through the lens of the past seeing ourselves forever through the lens of past sins and mistakes and never feeling free, never feeling good enough, never feeling, always feeling like an imposter because we know the deep, dark secret of our past. Living as second-class citizens is God's family, and we need to start seeing ourselves the way Jesus does. He doesn't remember all that garbage that you keep putting in front of your face and choosing to see yourself in light of. He doesn't. He sees you for what you are, a brand new creation in him. Some of us need to take off those dirty garbage sin glasses and put them aside. And be free. Accept the amazing grace that God has offered. Final thing, fifth thing is this. We need to seek to live deeply into God's grace each day. To be made more and more holy. What that means is to be made more and more his people every day. And that means that we should be growing. It means that we should be changing. And it means that we should be pursuing growth and change with vigor. Not sitting as lumps, doing nothing, Wondering why our faith doesn't feel very rich or exciting. We've got to get after it. So let us live forward into the amazing grace of God according to the new covenant that is ours based on the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Amen. Pray with me, friends. Loving God, it just astounds us, it humbles us that you, our God, in Jesus, would lay down your life and die for us, and that in doing so, you would take away all our sins for all time, and now all we need to do is ask and you forgive. Lord, help us to humble ourselves and to accept that gift every day of our lives, and to live more deeply into your grace every day that we might be transformed, in Jesus' name, amen.